God's Word in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. I appreciate everyone's prayers for me and my family as we went through the, the COVID uh, pandemic business at our house. Um, we are well, and we are still recovering. So we are all ready, but not yet. So I have water with me. But the problem is, I had a very intricate, detailed sermon plan for Christmas. Therefore, we're going to have to do twice as much work in one sermon. So I hope you're ready for an hour and a half. No, I'm just kidding. My mom asked me very specifically not to go extremely long because of the children. So because of the children, we will jump in and we may be a little fast and furious, but we are going to start in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you remember from two weeks ago, I know we've slept since then, but Isaiah had a vision of God. God showed himself to him. And we talked a little bit about how the language seems to point to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and that this vision of God that he had transformed everything else that he did. His whole ministry was based on this vision of God, this God who is holy, holy, holy. The only area where God is thrice mentioned as something. God is holy, holy, holy. And so this holiness pervades everything else that Isaiah says. Everything else that Isaiah thinks about and does is based on this vision of God. But we stopped because he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what he is saying is that he is completely and utterly devastated. When he saw the holy God, he recognized that he should not be in the presence of God. Therefore, he should be completely destroyed. And we stopped there, didn't we? We left the tension hanging. So let's go ahead and continue reading. But we're going to start in Isaiah 6, and we're going to read 6.1, and I've tacked on some of chapter 7. So let's get ready to read. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins, without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, 
and the Lord drives away the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Chapter 7 says, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Aram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramali, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son Shir Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramali. For Aram, along with Ephraim, the son of Ramali, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabeel's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim too will be shattered to be a pe- will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramali. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. Your word is convicting, and it is also comforting. Father, as we read of this vision that Isaiah has, this commissioning, and then the context in which this all occurs, we we see your powerful hand at work. Lord, as we come to Christmas and we think about the hope of the coming Messiah that these people in Jerusalem longed for, that they were um, anticipating, that they were hoping for, we too also remember with great joy the coming of the Messiah. Father, as we come to this Christmas season, help us to remember the reason for Christmas, that we celebrate the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slaughtered for our sins. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, as we approach this text, there is much to be unpacked. Father, we don't have the time to go into the detail that this this deserves. Father, I pray that the wisdom that you would have us gather from this passage would come to us that we would be able to go only as deep as you would have us. And all these things we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Isaiah is caught up in this vision. And as he's caught up in this vision, he's struck by something. Something stands out to him. Does anybody remember what stood out to Isaiah? His iniquity, his lack of holiness. What does it say? It says, woe is me, for I am ruined. And we talked a little bit about that word ruined and and what that really uh, connotates. The the whole emphasis is, I am devastated. I am silenced. I am am completely wiped out. And then not only that, but he said, I'm also a man that lives with all these other unclean people inside the nation of Judah. And so if you remember the history, Judah and Jerusalem are the only real province that are left following the Lord. Um, And they've had a rocky up and down with that as well. 
And King Uzziah has just passed away. He has just died. King Uzziah was that Shakespearean um, type king who did really good and then had a flaw near the end. And he was um, he got caught up in his own pride and he went and worshipped in the temple on his own strength. And God struck him with leprosy, which separated him from the people. And so his son reigned for a while. And then now his grandson is the one who is leading. Two weeks this week, we are going to see how Isaiah's vision accumulates in faithful service. Isaiah doesn't just get this image of God and then takes a break and he sits on the couch. But he, in fact, is now becoming a, of the Lord because of his consecration, his calling and commission in the context of a crisis. So we could also say that this message in the passage or the passage message, the main point of our passage is that we need to stand firm in our faith regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves. So how do we stand firm? Well, first of all, we need to talk about consecration, which is to be made holy, to be set apart as clean. The major issue that we left with two weeks ago was how does an unclean person survive the presence of God. It is obvious to Isaiah, as any other Hebrew reader of this text, that Isaiah should be destroyed. We know that no one should see the face of God. In fact, Moses was allowed to see God, but he was allowed to see his backside, and only when his hand covered him over the face in a little cliff. And so he was able to see it, but then his face glowed, and it scared everybody else because his face glowed after seeing God. So Isaiah recognizes that he deserves to die. But what do we see happen? Well, in verse 6, we see that then one of the seraphim flew to me. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. God initiates this holiness. He sends a seraph to remedy Isaiah's situation. And one thing we need to know about being made holy is that it is God who initiates the cleansing process. Remember Isaiah's cry. He says, woe is me. He didn't say, God, make me holy. He didn't say, God, do this for me or let me dwell in your presence. He didn't say anything except for, oh, no. Oh, no. This is bad. Bad for me because I don't belong in this presence. So God, first of all, initiates holiness, but God also uses his own holiness to atone for this man's uncleanliness. The seraph had a glowing coal. Where did he get the coal from? It was from the altar. The altar which represents the, um, the place that continually burns in the temple before God. It was a place where God accepts sacrifices, where he holds the idea of propitiation and atonement. The idea that that the people will be forgiven their sins as they bring their sacrifices, as they bring the incense over and over again every single day. And so the idea of this coal from the holy place is that it will make Isaiah holy. It makes Isaiah holy not because Isaiah had any holiness amongst himself, but because God's cleansing agent through fire, which is interesting that the Hebrews never used fire for cleansing. They use it always as a symbol of the wrath of God. And so this fire burns away the unholiness in Isaiah, but it's because of God's holiness placed instead of man's. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a lot like what happened at the cross? 
where the sin of man is placed on Jesus Christ, the perfect symbol. It's sort of like what we did this morning with communion. By doing communion, we had a visible symbol of what happened in our heart. When we do baptism, we are reminded that this is a visible or outward symbol of an inward significant change. And this is what that coal signifies, that God has used this coal to atone for the sins of Isaiah, not by taking away Isaiah's sins, but by replacing it with his own holiness. So think about that. The, this word atonement is important in Bible language. We need to understand that it's uh, an instantaneous thing. Isaiah contributes nothing, and God pays the price for the whole thing. He pays the ransom price. So we know that God initiates holiness. That's what we see in our text. And the process of holiness, does, he, does, he, he initiates the process of holiness through his own holiness. God's holiness is what makes other, us holy, right? We don't do it ourselves. I mean, how many people have caught up in the idea that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? We, we think about this often, that we, we are self-made men. The army used to have a slogan, army of one, which I thought was the most ridiculous slogan that they've ever came up with. Because the, the army is not an army of one, right? They're an army of many, and we should be. If we're an army of one, we're failing. We've lost. The battle is over, and we're dead. Right, So what, is this, what, the, what this holiness idea is, is not that we do it ourselves, but it's because of God and His holiness making us holy. And this pattern is not new. This is not new to Isaiah. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden, because of their sinfulness, they sin, and they're not able to approach a holy God. In fact, they run away, and they hide. And what did God promise would happen if they ate the forbidden fruit. They would die. But instead of letting them die, what does God do? He kills some animals and gives them some skin to cover them. He sheds blood. Something else had to die for Adam and Eve to survive from the garden. And so God provides atonement first by using animal skins and the shed blood. And then the people of Israel develop, get a, a sacrificial system for atonement of their sins. And that represents this coming permanent sacrifice that a Messiah will come and atone for excuse me. A Messiah will come and atone for the sins of the people. God consecrates, he makes holy those whom he calls. That's why in the New Testament we are often called saints. Right? Christians are called saints because we are considered the holy ones. We have been made holy. Not only are we made holy, but then we have a purpose. We are we're given a calling. So for Isaiah, this cleansing, Isaiah is now able to answer the sovereign. Look at verse 8. Oh, let's go back to 7 just really quick. What I find very fascinating is he doesn't just do the action, touch his lips with the coal, and then leave it there. He actually explains the purpose. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. Jesus explains why you do the Lord's Supper while you do communion. And so I find that very helpful. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord. So now Isaiah finally is able to see past his own sinfulness, and he hears the voice of the Lord. And this is a, a passage that is very familiar. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah, of course, out of the gratefulness of this atoning sacrifice, the, the holiness that was made in him, he answers the question. It seems that he is, is so thankful for what God has done by making him holy, by 
giving that atonement, he screams out, here I am, send me. I'm here, I'm ready. Now we know that God was not asking uh, this question because he didn't know who was going to go. It was more of a rhetorical type question, right? And so he says, who will I send and who will go for us? Isaiah is now ready to serve. He has been made holy. God does not just save us to make us holy so we can sit around and eat potato chips, right? He doesn't keep us here on camp couch, but he sends us out to a mission, to a purpose, but to serve. God doesn't call us to sit, but to serve. I often say the church is not a cruise ship where we get to sit and eat delicious meals and look at the scenery, but it's a battleship that is trying to send us out to war, to combat. Each one of you are given are made holy for a purpose, and that purpose is not to sit here in a chair or in a pew, but to serve. And the question we should ask, right, is how do we serve? Well, there's so many ways that we are given to serve. Now, some of you may sit around and say, I'm waiting for my gifting. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to sit here and wait for it to come to me. That's not really the right answer. The right answer is, let me try this. Let me go try sitting with some children for a little while. It may be too difficult, right? And if I go really long, it may get even worse. So we got to go quick. So what are some ways that we as a church can fulfill our divine mandate? Well, the first thing is, how do we build up the body? We need to be coming to church looking for ways to encourage one another in the Lord, to to strengthen each other's faith. So the first thing we should all be doing is prayer. Everyone here should be praying for other members in our church. That's why you need to get on the prayer chain. And if you don't, No, Patty, you need to meet with her and get on the prayer list. Get your email on there. Um, Gary stole my thunder this morning. We didn't talk about it, but we had the same plan. Get on the prayer chain so that you can be praying for our members who are struggling. The next thing is giving. Giving of finances and giving of time. We are all gifted with uh, with time and money. Now, this is the thing. A lot of people make this into a legalistic thing where you have to give a certain amount every month and there's certain strict rules that people try to abide by. Those can be helpful. It's helpful to have a a ballpark figure for giving financially and in your time. But ultimately, who does everything belong to? God. So all you're doing is giving back to God what he has given you. And so when we give, we're, we're showing good stewardship of the gifts that God has given us, whether it be finances and whether it be time. Next, you can serve. Serve in some capacity. Whether that, maybe your your, your gifting is um, prayer, gifting is with children. Maybe you're just good at decorating. Maybe you're good at hosting people. Maybe you should look around for new people in our congregation and invite them over for Christmas. Um, there are little things that you can do, and um, sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's awkward, right? People are strange, but we are called to associate with the strange people because guess what? You too are strange. So Isaiah was cleansed and now he's called and now he has a commission. He's given a task, right? It's not just enough that he's, he's called to a specific job, but he has a very specific commission. Um, when you are in the army, you can receive a commission, And that commission is very specific. If you are a non-commissioned officer, they make it really complicated. And you have this sweet creed, right? No one is more professional than I. I'm a non-commissioned officer, a leader of soldiers. As a non-commissioned officer, I realize I'm a member of a time-honored corps, which is known as the backbone of the army. 
And we continue down with the rest of the creed. It's like three paragraphs. I still have it memorized because I found that a very important task, a very important job, and I wanted to do it right. So what is the commission that Isaiah has? Well, he has a message. Verse 9 tells him what his message is. He said, the Lord replied, and this is the message he has to do. Go, say to these people. Now, this is very fascinating. Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. That's the message. Think about that for a minute. If I said, okay, your job is to go talk to people who are not going to listen to you. Your job is to go and preach to these folks who are not going to understand anything that you're saying. How, uh, how encouraged would you be for that task? You probably get discouraged pretty quick. In fact, he even goes further in verse 10. He says, make the minds of these people dull. Man, sometimes it sounds like my sermons. Everyone's falling asleep, right? We're making the minds of the people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. So Isaiah's job, I'm just like, let's get this in our minds. Isaiah's job is to go to the people of, of Judah and preach to them and make them dumb, make them sleepy and make them stupid so that they don't get healed. Otherwise, it says in verse 10, see, they, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. What in the world kind of commission is that? Well, we'll find out. He says they need to keep listening, which is a physical, but they're not going to understand internally. Keep looking, physical, but do not perceive, which is internal. So he has the task, which is to make them dumb and blind and dull. Otherwise, they might get saved. And what is Isaiah's response? Verse 11, then I said, until when, Lord? What? How long is this going to happen? Is Isaiah questioning God or is he just saying, oh no, this is going to be bad. This is going to be tough. This is a hard job that Isaiah has been given. But you know, it's interesting that almost all the prophets have a similar calling and commission. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are, are called to preach to the people and even uh, one of them is told that their, their forehead is like a diamond and they're going to be hitting their diamond forehead against the hard heads of their people. That's the message of the prophets. So, he asks how long. Isaiah, recognizing the futility, asks the Lord how long this is going to happen. And then the Lord responds. Look at this. And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins, without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate until there are no more people left. You're going to preach judgment on these people who are not going to listen to you. That is your job, Isaiah. We see the result in verse 12. It says, And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Verse 13, Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. The Lord is going to empty the land. In fact, even a tenth, which sometimes we can refer to as the Levites, um, but even the holy people will be burnt again and be cut down. 
and there's going to be nothing left except for a stump. How many of you have seen a stump grow back after you have cut it and burnt it and scorched it? Very unlikely, isn't it? But what have we heard about a stump before? That there will be a shoot out of the stump. And so there is a little bit of hope given in the end of this passage. God still provides a type of hope. So in the desolation, we have some context for this hope. So in verses 7, 1 through 9, we get the context. It says, this took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. If you know anything about Ahaz, is that he is a wicked king, a wicked ruler. He is not a good man. He takes his own son and sacrifices him to a false god. That's the Ahaz that's being mentioned here. And Second uh, Chronicles 28 gives you the full background. If you're, you have some time this week, go ahead and look at that. And we know that God gave Ahaz, his whole army was given to the hands of the Syrians because of Ahaz's wickedness. Yet these armies, his enemy armies, still could not take Jerusalem. And what we see is this is a time when the army has been defeated, yet they haven't conquered Jerusalem yet because King Ahaz here is working at shoring up the defenses of Jerusalem. Where Isaiah is told to go is the water source for Jerusalem, a water source for Jerusalem. Um, and so he is going to go, he's going down there setting up uh, walls and trying to protect their water. And so we know that they're worried about this coming invasion. Aram's king and Israel's king, they teamed up. They saw the leadership vacuum. King Uzziah died, and now they're ready to try to conquer Jerusalem. So remember the sense of unease the people are feeling at this time. What is going to happen to us? King Uzziah was a, a king that, that ruled for 50-something years, and now there's a transition and there's a vacuum. And then seeing the, the, the emptiness, these other two kings decide to move on Jerusalem, and the people are scared. Look at verse 2. It says, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of the people trembled like trees of a forest shaken in the, in the wind. Everyone was freaking out. Everyone was worried. So God gives assurance. First of all, in verse 3, he sends Isaiah. This Isaiah who's going to be preaching to these hard-headed people. The people that are not going to listen to him. Which we know Ahaz doesn't listen to him. So Isaiah is sent by the Lord in verse 3. He says, go out with your son, Shear Jashub. Anybody looking for names for their children? Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. So if you need to remember something, like where you left your car keys, you could name your child on the kitchen counter. And that way you'll always remember for the rest of your life that your keys are on the kitchen counter, wherever you look at your son. Not a recommended strategy, but... Just so you know, that's what this is. Well, that's what's going on here. And Shir Jashub is not really mentioned much more after this. So really, it's a reminder to the people that God is going to return a remnant. A remnant will return. So God offers comfort through Isaiah. So what does he say in verse 4? Say to him, so Isaiah is to say to Ahaz, calm down and be quiet. Now, if your wife is freaking out, do not use these words. Calm down and be quiet, woman. No, that's not, that's not what's happening. He's saying, chill out, Ahaz. Relax, Ahaz. Trust in God, Ahaz. Stop freaking out. Be calm. Don't be afraid. And don't be a wuss. Or don't be a coward. 
Don't be afraid or cowardly because now he makes fun of them. This is, this is what I love about God is there's a lot of sarcasm that goes on. He says, because of these two smoldering sticks, why are you scared of a couple sticks with like some smoke coming off of them? The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramali. So God offers some comfort, claiming that they will not have victory. Five through six, he gives a reason for the protection. Not because Ahaz is a good king. Not because the people of Jerusalem are obedient to the Lord. But for a reason. Look at this. For Aram, along with Ephraim, the son of Ramali, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. The main emphasis here is that there will be a king that is not of the line of David. God has promised a, a line of David as the king in Jerusalem. And this foreign army, along with the people of whatever's left of the Israelites, have decided to put a new king, a puppet king, in order that they can make a peace treaty with um, the Assyrians. But what happens here is that God is going to defend his honor regardless of the people. So he gives them an assurance. He says, do not fear because I am God. And then he challenges them. In verses 7 through 9, God challenges them and he says, have faith, trust in me. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. If you have a little bit of geography, you understand what's going on here. He's just saying, this is the main area of this, this, this area. Um, it's kind of like saying the, the capital of the United States is Washington, D.C., and the president is the uh, boss of Washington, D.C. That's kind of what's happening here, okay? And so he says, the chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Aram is Samaria. The chief of Samaria is the son Ramali. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. So what we can do is we can draw a general principle from this. It's when we depart from God's word, even if we think we have a firm foundation, ruin is still at hand. What has happened here is Ahaz and the people of Judah, Jerusalem as the capital, have abandoned the word of the Lord. And God has said here, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm with these words that I am giving to you, you do not trust in these promises of God, you are not going to stand at all. And so the principle that we get is that we have a consequence that if we don't believe in the promises of God, it is vain for us to expect salvation. You know, we have more proof of God's faithfulness because of the Messiah than generations that came before Christ. These people are hoping for this coming Savior, this Messiah, where we as current modern-day Christians have all the hope of him because he already came. He already died and he already did his promises. So in the context of a people of upheaval and a possible invasion, God calls Isaiah to preach a message that is ignored and rejected. But God has a plan. I think for Isaiah, he needs to trust in God and who he is. And for us and the people of Judah, we also need to trust and have faith in who God is and trust in his promises. How do we serve 
Well, we serve out of thankfulness. If you look at Isaiah, he wasn't going to be very successful. He wasn't going to be a uh, famous preacher. He was going to fail. The people were not going to listen to him. He was going to preach the same old stones, hard-headed folks, over and over again, and they were not going to get it. Yet his job was to be faithful. I don't know what your task is. I don't know what God has called you to do this year to be faithful this year, but I want you to consider what you're being called to and how can you step out of your comfort zone. That is your task this week. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this, the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are called not just to be holy, but to serve. And out of that thankfulness for the holiness, we are to serve out of joy. Lord, I pray that you would give a vision to these people, that they would understand what their task is for you, that we would be a church that seeks to, to evangelize the lost and to encourage the saints. God, you have gifted us with so much wonderful talent in this room just because of the gifting of you. Lord, I pray that we would be a holy people seeking to honor and worship a holy God and that we would spread this desire to those around us. Lord, be with us and guide us. Keep us safe this week. Be with those who are sick. Comfort those who mourn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.